Welcome to the Hackberry House of Chosun. My name is Bob, and I'm reading today from a sermon that was once preached by Charles Spurgeon. This message is from a collection of Spurgeon messages created by Perry Boardman, known as Spurgeon's Gems. Today's message is from volume 1, number 44, and we're halfway through, almost halfway through the message. And in the first part of the message, he was talking about false kinds of repentances. And now he says, I propose to occupy a short time by some remarks on true repentance, uh, based on the text that he gave, which is in um, the book of Acts, chapter 11, verse 18. Then has God also to the Gentiles granted repentance unto life. Repentance unto life. It's that phrase that he's going after. First of all, let me correct one or two mistakes which those who are coming to Jesus Christ very often make. One is they frequently think they must have deep, horrible, and awful manifestations of the terrors of law and of hell before they can be said to repent. How many have I conversed with who have said to me that what I could only translate into English to you this morning, something in this way, I do not repent enough. I do not feel myself enough of a sinner. I have not been so gross and wicked a transgressor as many. I could almost wish I had. Not because I love sin, but because then I think I would have deeper convictions of my guilt and feel more sure that I had truly come to Jesus Christ. Now, it's a great mistake to imagine that these terrible and horrible thoughts of a coming judgment have anything to do with the validity of repentance. They are very often not the gift of God at all, but the insinuations of the devil. And even where the law works and produces these thoughts, you must not regard them as being part and parcel of repentance. They do not enter into the essence of repentance. Repentance is a hatred of sin. It is a turning from sin and a determination in the strength of God to forsake it. Repentance is a hatred of sin and a forsaking of it. It is possible for a man to repent without any terrific display of the terrors of the law. He may repent without having heard the trumpet sounds of Sinai, without having heard more than a distant rumble of its thunder. A man may repent entirely through the power of the voice of mercy. Some hearts God opens to faith, as in the case of Lydia. Others he assaults with the sledgehammer of the wrath to come. Some he opens with the picklock of grace, and, and some with the crowbar of the law. There may be different ways of getting there, but the question is, has he got there? Is he there? It often happens that the Lord is not in the tempest or in the earthquake, but in that still, small voice. There's another mistake many poor people make when they're thinking about salvation, and that is that they cannot repent enough. They imagine that were they to repent up to a certain degree, they would be saved. Oh, sir, some of you will say, I have not penitence enough. Beloved, let me tell you that there is not any eminent degree of repentance which is necessary to salvation. You know there are degrees of faith and and yet the least faith saves. So there are degrees of repentance, and the least repentance will save the soul if it is sincere. 
The Bible says, He that believes shall be saved. And when it says that, it includes the very smallest degree of faith. And so when it says, Repent and be saved, it includes the man who has the lowest degree of real repentance. Repentance, moreover, is never perfect in any man in this mortal state. We never get perfect faith so as to be entirely free from doubting. We never get repentance which is free from some hardness of heart. The most sincere penitent that you know will feel himself to be partially impenitent. Repentance is also a continual, lifelong act. It will grow continually. I believe a Christian on his deathbed will more bitterly repent than ever he did before. It is a thing to be done all your life long, sinning and repenting. Sinning and repenting make up a Christian's life. Repenting and believing in Jesus, repenting and believing in Jesus make up the consummation of his happiness. You must not expect that you will be perfect, perfected in repentance before you are saved. No Christian can be perfect. Repentance is a grace. Some people preach it as a condition of salvation, condition of nonsense. There are no conditions of salvation. God gives the salvation himself, and he only gives it to those to whom he will. He says, I will have mercy on whom I will have mercy. If then God has given you the least repentance, if it be sincere repentance, praise him for it. And expect that repentance will grow deeper and deeper as you go further on. Then this remark, I think, ought to be applied to all Christians. Christian men and women, you feel that you have not deep enough repentance. You feel that you have not large enough faith. What are you to do? Ask for an increase of faith, and it will grow. And so with repentance. Have you ever tried to get deep repentance? My friends, if you have failed therein, still trust in Jesus and try every day to get a penitential spirit. Do not expect, I say again, to have perfect repentance at first. Sincere penitence you must have. And then under divine grace you will go on from strength to strength until at last you shall hate and abhor sin as a serpent or a viper. Then shall you be near, very near, the perfection of repentance. These few thoughts then in opening the subject, and now you say, well, what are the signs of true repentance in the sight of God? First I tell you, there is always sorrow with it. No man ever repents of sin without having some kind of sorrow with it. More or less intense it may be according to the way in which God calls him and his previous manner of life, but there must be some sorrow. We do not care when it comes, but at some time or other it must come, or it is not the repentance of the Christian. I knew a man once who professed that he had repented, and he certainly was a changed character so far as the external was concerned, but I never could see that he had any real sorrow for sin. Neither when he professed to believe in Jesus did I ever see any marks of penitence in him. I considered in that man it was a kind of ecstatic jump into grace. And I found out afterwards he had just as ecstatic a jump into guilt again. He was not a sheep of God, for he had not been washed in penitence. For all God's people have to be washed there when converted from their sins. 
No man can come to Christ and know his pardon without feeling that sin is a hateful thing, for it put Jesus to death. You who have tearless eyes, unbended knees, unbroken hearts, how can you think you are saved? The gospel promised salvation only to those who really repent. Lest, however, I should hurt some of you and make you feel what I do not intend, let me remark that I do not mean to say that you must shed actual tears. Some men are so hard in constitution that they could not shed a tear. I have known some who have been able to sigh and to groan, but tears just would not come. Well, I say that though the tear often affords evidence of penitence, you may have repentance unto life without it. What I would have you understand is that there must be some real sorrow. If the prayer may not be vocal, it must be secret. There must be a groan if there is no word. There must be a sigh if there is no tear to show the repentance, even though it be but small. There must be in this repentance, I think, not only sorrow, but there must be practice, that is, practical repentance. The poet says, "'Tis not enough to say we're sorry and repent, and then go on from day to day just as we always went." Many people are very sorrowful and very penitent for their past sins. Hear them talk. Oh, they say, I I deeply regret that ever I should have been a drunkard, and I sincerely bemoan that I should have fallen into that sin. I deeply lament that I should have done so. Then they go straight home, and when one o'clock on Sunday comes, you'll find them at it again. And yet such people say they have repented. Do you believe them when they say they are sinners and, and but they don't love sin? They may not love it for the time, but can they be sincerely penitent and then go and transgress again immediately in the same way as they did before? How can we believe you if you transgress again and again and do not forsake your sin? We know a tree by its fruit, and you who are penitent will bring forth works of repentance. I have often thought it was a very beautiful instance showing the power of penitence, which a pious minister once related. He had been preaching on penitence and had in the course of his sermon spoke of the sin of stealing. Well, on his way home, a laborer came alongside of him and the minister observed that he had something under his smock frock. He told him he need not accompany him farther, but the man persisted. At last he said, All right, I I have a spade, a shovel, under my arm, which I I stole up at that farm. I heard you preaching about the sin of stealing, and I'm going to put it there again. Now that was sincere penitence, which caused him to go back and replace the stolen article. It was like those South Sea Islanders of whom we read who who stole the missionaries' articles of apparel and furniture and everything out of their houses, but when they were savingly converted, they brought them all back. Many of you say you repent, yet nothing comes of it. It is not not worth the snap of a finger. People sincerely repent. They say that they should have committed a robbery or that they have kept a gambling house 
but they're very careful that all the proceeds shall be laid out to their heart's best comfort. True repentance will yield works meet suitable for repentance. It will be practical repentance. Yet farther, you may know whether your repentance is practical by this test. Does it last or does it not? Many of your repentances are like the hectic flush upon the cheek of the consumptive person, which is no sign of health. This is the person with tuberculosis. No sign of health. Many a time I've seen a young man in a flow of newly acquired but unsound godliness, and he has thought he was about to repent of his sins. For some hours, such a one was deeply penitent before God, and for weeks he relinquishes his follies. He attends the house of prayer, converses as a child of God, but back he goes to his sins as the dog returns to his vomit. The evil spirit has gone back to his house and has taken with him seven others more wicked than himself. And the last state of that man is worse than the first. How long has your penitence lasted? Did it continue for months? Or did it come upon you and then go away suddenly? You said, I will join the church. I I will do this and that and the other for God's cause. Are your works lasting? Do you believe your repentance will last six months? Will it continue for 12 months? Will it last until you are wrapped in your winding sheet to your buried? Yet again, I must ask you one question more. Do you think you'd repent of your sins if no punishment were placed before you? Or do you repent because you know you shall be punished forever if you remain in your sins? Well, suppose I tell you there is no hell at all. That if you choose, you may swear. If you want to, you can live without God. Suppose there were no reward for virtue, no punishment for sin. Which would you choose? Can you honestly say this morning, I think, I know, by the grace of God, I would choose righteousness. If there were no reward for it, if there were nothing to be gained by righteousness and nothing to be lost by sin, every sinner hates his sin when he comes near to the mouth of hell. Every murderer hates his crime when he comes to the gallows. I never found a child hate its fault so much as when it was going to be punished for it. If you had no cause to dread the pit, if you knew that you might give up your life to sin and that you might do so with impunity, would you still feel that you hated sin and that you could not, would not commit sin except through the infirmity of the flesh? Would you still desire holiness? Would you still desire to live like Christ? If so... If you can say this in sincerity, if you thus turn to God and hate your sin with an everlasting hatred, you need not fear but that you have a repentance which is unto life. Well, now comes the concluding and third point. That is the blessed beneficence of God in granting to men repentance unto life. Repentance, my dear friends, 
is the gift of God. It is one of those spiritual favors which ensure eternal life. It is the marvel of divine mercy that it not only provides the way of salvation, that it not only invites men to receive grace, but that it positively makes men willing to be saved. God punished his son Jesus Christ for our sins, and therein he provided salvation for all his lost children. He sends his minister. The minister bids men repent and believe, and he labors to bring them to God. They will not listen to the call, and they despise the minister. But then another messenger is sent, a heavenly ambassador who cannot fail. He summons men to repent and turn to God. Their thoughts are a little wayward, but after he, the divine spirit, pleads with them, they forget what manner of men they were, and they repent and turn. Now, what would we do if, if we had been treated as God was? If we had made a supper or a feast and, and sent out messengers to invite the guests to come, what would we do? Do you think we should take the trouble to go around and visit them all and, and get them to come? And when they sat down and said they could not eat, would we open their mouths? If they still declared they could not eat, should we still make them eat? Ah, oh, beloved, I am inclined to think you would not do so. If you had signed the letters of invitation and the invited would not come to your feast, would you not say, you shall not have it? But what does God do? He says, now I will make a feast. I will invite the people. And if they do not come in, my ministers shall go out and fetch them in bodily. I will say to my servants, go out into the highways and hedges and compel them to come in, that they may partake of the feast I have prepared. Is it not a, a stupendous act of divine mercy that he actually makes them willing he does not do it by force, but uses a sweet spiritual persuasion. They are first as unwilling to be saved as they can be. But, says God, that's nothing. I have power to make you turn to me, and I will. The Holy Ghost then brings home the word of God to the consciences of his children in so blessed a manner that they can no longer refuse to love Jesus. Mark you, not by any force against the will, but by a sweet spiritual influence changing the will. Oh, you, you lost and, and ruined sinners. Stand here and admire my master's mercy. He sets not only a feast of good things before men, but he induces them to come and partake of them and constrains them to continue feasting until he carries them to the everlasting eternal mansion. And as he bears them up, he says to each one, I have loved thee with an everlasting love. Therefore, by my loving kindness, I have drawn thee. Now, dost thou love me? O oh Lord, they cry, your grace in bringing us here proves that you do love us, for we were unwilling to go. You said, you shall go. We said, we would not go, but you have made us go. And now, Lord, we bless you and love you for that force. It was sweet constraint. I was a struggling captive, but I am now made willing. The poet says, O oh, sovereign grace, my heart subdue. 
I would be led in triumph too, a willing captive to my Lord to sing the honors of his word. Well now, what say you? Some of you will say, Sir, I've been trying to repent for a long time. In pains and afflictions I've been praying and trying to believe and doing all I can. I will tell you another thing. You will try a long time before you'll be able to do it. That's not the way to get it. I heard of two gentlemen traveling. One of them said to the other, I don't know how it is, but you always seem to recollect your wife and family and all that's doing at home, and you seem as if you connected all things around you with them. But I try to bring mine to my recollection constantly, and yet I never can. No, said the other, that's the very reason. It's because you try. If you could connect them with every little circumstance you meet, you would easily remember them. I think at such and such a time, now they are rising. Now they are at prayers. At such and such a time, now they're having their breakfast. In his way, which is this way that I do, I I have them still before me. I think the same thing happens with regard to repentance. If a man says, I want to believe, and he tries by some mechanical means to work himself into repentance, it's an absurdity. He'll never accomplish it. But the way for him to repent is by God's grace to believe, to believe and think on Jesus. If he pictures to himself the wounded, bleeding side, the crown of thorns, the tears of anguish, if he takes a vision of all that Christ suffered, I will be bound for it. He will turn to him in repentance. I would stake what reputation I may have in spiritual things upon this, that a man cannot, under God's Holy Spirit, contemplate the cross of Christ without a broken heart. If it is not so, my heart is different from everyone else's. I have never known a man who has thought upon and and taken a view of the cross who has not found that it begat repentance and begat faith. We look at Jesus Christ if we would be saved. And we then say, amazing sacrifice that Jesus thus died to save sinners. If you want faith, if you lack it, remember he gives it. If you want repentance, he gives it. If you want everlasting life, he gives it liberally. He can force you to feel your great sin, cause you to repent by the sight of Calvary's cross and the sound of the greatest, deepest death shriek, Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani, my God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? That will beget repentance. It will make you weep and say, Alas, and did my Savior bleed? And did my Sovereign die? Then, beloved, if you would have repentance, this is my best advice to you. Look to Jesus. And may the blessed giver of all repentance unto salvation guard you from the false repentances which I have described and give you that repentance which exists unto life. I close with this poem. Repent. The voice celestial cries, (coughs) nor longer dare delay. The wretch that scorns the mandate dies and meets a fiery day. No more the sovereign eye of God o'erlooks the crimes of men. His heralds are dispatched abroad to warn the world of sin. The summons reach through all the earth. Let earth attend and fear. Listen, 
ye men of royal birth, and let your vassals hear. Together in his presence bow, and all your guilt confess. Embrace the blessed Savior now, nor trifle with his grace. Bow, ere the awful trumpets sound, and call you to his bar. For mercy knows the appointed bound, and turns to vengeance there. Mm. Spurgeon again. You can access this entire series of messages online at SpurgeonGems.com. Well, thank you for being with us today. Do look around the site at the hundreds and hundreds of other audios that we've put together through the years that will bless you, some of them. I know there's something there that will bless you. I trust that you'll go for that. This is the Hackberry House of Chosun. This audio is being released on the 8th of February, 2023. Lord willing, we'll talk again real soon. Bye-bye.